previously on the Enneagram Journey. I've got it! We're calling just to say, I'm there for you. I'm there for you. Then, after a period of being there for you, we slowly remove the two words for you, and we're just there. You need to have multiple majors. That's the precipice that everybody precipice gets go with me bud precipice that's the there's no way that's a word but how much money you got in your pocket precipice how much money you got in your pocket every time you do this you demean your georgia education (laughs) kt that's definitely a word (laughs) really well i just want you to know i'm there for you Of course, now I'm here for you, but when I'm not here for you, I'm there for you. (laughs) Well, wherever you are, I appreciate it. It's other-referenced. It's It's, taking care of other people. that other-reference and not paying good enough attention to the ones, the individuals, you know, and um, it's it's hurtful. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, I'm, I'm ashamed of it as a mother. He's already out here. I feel like this is kind of a Maury opportunity to be like, well, we have your son here today. And uh, so, Scott, come on out. And uh, In the middle of our fight last night, he did this thing that he always does where he asks questions to himself aloud and then answers them. Am I happy Beth left me? Of course not. Can I hope to pick up the pieces and move on? Absolutely. When you feel so mad that you want to I sure did. Do I think there's a future here? I don't see why not. I'll tell you that. There for you, crap, was a stroke of genius. Oh, please. Never mind. Ah, come on. You're a genius. All right. And we are here for you. You are now listening to the Anagram Journey podcast with your host, the Anagram Godmother, Suzanne Stabile. My name is Joel, and I produce this podcast, and I think today we produce some really good stuff. In 2022, Suzanne traveled around the country teaching on liminality and transformation in support of her latest book, The Journey Toward Wholeness. Today, we answer some of the questions that people submitted at the workshops that we couldn't answer in real time. Before we get to that, however, first plug of the 2023 podcast is the March teaching event, The Joy and Complexity of Fostering and Adoption. I've been answering a lot of questions that have been emailed since we posted this event. And what I realized is that the name is very solid, but it's a little narrow. Fostering and adoption are not in my near future as far as I can tell. Uh, And I think my wife will confirm that. But listening to Suzanne as she puts her ideas and her notes together for the event, as a parent, it's got me really excited because I keep learning so much from her. As a co-parent of a very blended family, I'm ecstatic. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, I'm not fostering and I'm not going to be adopting, this isn't for me, it probably still is. I'm also really excited to announce that Sparrow House Counseling in Dallas is teaming up with LTM to offer CEUs for the weekend. So if you're a professional or an individual who needs some of those bad boys, Sparrow House is stepping up. Join us in Dallas or join us online from wherever you are. 
March 9th through the 11th. LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com slash family is where you can visit for more information and for registration. Learning to manage expectations through the lens of the Enneagram. Joy and complexity of fostering and adoption with LTM and Suzanne Stabile. I hope you can join us. It's going to be really fantastic. March 9th through March 11th, Thursday to Saturday. LifeInTheTrinityMinistry.com slash family. Now, let's start the show. All right, we're recording podcast number two of the day. Uh, number one for you listeners. Uh, number one in your heart, number two for us today. <laughs> there you go. Today's Q&A conversation, I've got a stack here, 100 plus deep. They are questions from the Enneagram Journey Toward Wholeness Tour that people have asked the weekends of, but you can't answer them all. There's, you know, there's no been 100 plus, 200 plus people at each one depending on which one, what city you're in. And there's just not enough time. That theme continues today. We're going to answer some of them. <laughs> but there's just not enough time. Yeah. When I went through them, I tried to pull as many that were duplicates. Mm-hmm. To be like, okay, let's answer this for 10 people. Interestingly enough, one of the most duplicated, duplicable. Frequently asked questions. Frequently asked questions. Strength. Duplicable. Duplicable. I like that word. Well, um, it's, it's you're a word. just you're your dad's son right now. Y- y'all just make up words. I didn't. I'll say to dad, is that a wor- is that a word? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's duplicable. So it's a, both a verb and an adjective. There you go. So strengths and weaknesses of a couple who is an anagram eight and an anagram six. What advice would you give an eight and a six who are married to each other? Those two questions were reworded several different ways. So six and an eight. And what advice would I give them? Well, it's basically what people are talking about is mm-hmm. how to make this work, what's good, what is uh, could be a difficulty, how so to navigate this. So is this our this. only question for this podcast? <laughs> right. <laughs> this is a two-parter about this one question. That's right. No. Okay. It has been said all of my life, and I'm sure long before me, that opposites attract. I'm not exactly sure that's true. I do think that we seek in other people what we know we don't have. I think we intuitively look for what we know we don't have. I think an eight and a six is a perfect example of that. If I was going to... We've never done this. We've never even had this conversation. But if if I was going to put opposites together of the nine numbers, then eight and six would be opposites. Um, Sixes have unending frustration with how quickly eights move and decide. And eights have the equal amount of frustration about how long it takes a six to make up their mind about something or make up their mind to do something. There's one thing they can do together that is a real advantage for both of them and that's meet in the middle between acting too quickly and not acting quickly enough eights don't ever question being seen and heard and known and saying what they think sixes tend to question it for so long that they end up not getting a chance to say what they have to contribute or what they have to offer so that's another difference where you can meet in the middle. 
another is. Eights would tell you that they're afraid of nothing. That's not true. They're afraid of vulnerability and they're afraid of betrayal. But they would say, I'm not afraid of anything. And sixes have this ongoing, pretty constant fear. Sometimes it's okay to be a little afraid. That's not a bad thing. And at other times, it's not helpful to be so afraid that it's paralyzing. So all of those opposites work to bring you together in the middle someplace in a way that you can meet each other for the sake of the relationship, but collectively be in a better place than you either one would be as individuals. I do think it would be interesting to know of the people who ask us this question, how many of the sixes are phobic and how many of the sixes are counterphobic? Because counterphobic sixes and eights have a completely different relationship than phobic sixes and eights do. And I tried to kind of aim my answer thus far to the middle between phobic and counterphobic somewhere on the continuum. I think the one place where there's a disconnect that requires real patience on the part of the eight, and that is the sixes inability to trust themselves that to eights seems illogical it just doesn't make any sense it's like what do you mean you don't trust yourself why don't you trust yourself and those questions don't help because they require productive thinking to answer and the thing that I think they both have to be careful about is that thinking and doing are dominant and the feelings that are necessary are going to have to find some place between them to land. And you can't have a healthy relationship without healthy feelings that you know how to share with one another. Finally, I would say that a disadvantage is eights have a tendency to want to push sixes or fix whatever's wrong for sixes because they're quick. And that's not a good move for AIDS to make. Besides trying to encourage the six to trust themselves, there are many ways for we in the aggressive stance to learn to slow down. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of tools and practices and suggestions. How can sixes speed up? It's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about Cheryl Fullerton, who is a, uh, my literary agent and uh, an editor for me. And with the last two books, she would sometimes look at me more often than I'd like to say and just say, that is just lazy thinking. You need to fix that. Why would you write that? That's just lazy thinking. Why would you think that? That's just lazy thinking. And coming from a six who knows that they're lazy thinkers too, you can't, you know, there's no ground to stand on except to receive that. It has turned out to be very helpful to me to realize, because sixes and twos are both thinking repressed, that I'm a lazy thinker. And I get all whipped up from lazy thinking. I slow down because of lazy thinking. I have anxiety often because of lazy thinking. And so I think sixes and 
ones and twos, but right now we're talking to sixes, have to get to a place where they don't support lazy thinking with laziness in terms of a lack of action. And they catch themselves in the thinking so that they correct the thinking in order to act more quickly. I don't think they can get there without catching themselves in the thinking. One of the questions here, and we're going to just piggyback it, and we're not going to whip it around all nine numbers. Uh, so, But someone's asking, uh, marriage between a four and a six, as a four, uh, how can I be more patient with her indecision? So really the object of this question is the four. Mm-hmm. I want to be very gentle with this response because that's what's called for. But my question for you is one that I have all the time. I carry this question all the time. How is it that for a number that experiences so many people being impatient with you, that you struggle to be patient with another person? People are very impatient with fours. And it's a disconnect for me. Like it's something I just don't understand. I would think because people... This is a big conversation, then I'll get down to the... But I would think if people are impatient with you, it would make you want to be more patient with other people. It doesn't work that way. Whatever it is. I would think if people easily get angry with you, you wouldn't easily get angry with other people. It just doesn't translate. And in my brain, it should. Now I feel better having said that. The key is for you to think about when other folks being impatient with you is effective. And my guess is not very often. And so you want to use something besides impatience to get a six to action. And you're the most creative number in some ways on the Enneagram. You can figure that out based on your six that you're in relationship with and what you know about them. And honestly, we have to teach sixes to trust themselves by pointing out to them over and over and over how much we trust them. And I think you can put boundaries on inaction. And I think it's very fair to say, we need to make a decision about this, and I know you need to think about it. So you have 24 hours, you have 18 hours, you have 36 hours, but we have to have an answer by then. You have till I get back from the bathroom. Well, now that's not quite <laughs> enough time. But you got to put boundaries around sixes because that's the only thing that stops the what ifs. And the what ifs are what takes so long. I want to keep connecting the lines. Um, let's go with this. I'm a female five. First, how can I explain my delayed feeling? My therapist thinks that's something to fix, and I'm not so sure. I really get a little squirmy when I counter a therapist. So I'm a little squirmy. We don't know this therapist. They might be a quack. We could be. But what I do know is this. Fives, that's how they operate. That's that's how you operate as a person. What was your exact language for that? How can I explain my delayed feelings? Right. It, that's how you're put together. You you can say to her, if Christmas is on, or him, if Christmas is on Tuesday, I feel it on Saturday. That's my way of being in the world. I, 
that doesn't change for me. And then you can explain that the that you know there are some things that you can work on. So one of the things that's difficult for you, I'm 95% sure, is having someone give you a gift because you don't know how to express your gratitude for the gift. Now that's something you can fix. You can receive the gift, and rather than wait two or three days to respond to that, you can say, thank you so much. This is so thoughtful. And then three days later, you can write a note that says, I've always wanted one of these, or it looks perfect on the mantle, or all the things. So the therapist has a point in that you can show up with some feelings, and you don't want to fake any, and so you show up with what you've got, or with thinking through things that you can say that are appropriate in certain situations, and then you fully respond two or three days later when you actually have the feelings about it. And you can teach people about your fiveness so that you don't hurt other people's feelings with all of that. And I don't, I want to back up a little bit. I mean, maybe this therapist is great. I said maybe they're a quack. Yeah. Maybe it's a phenomenal therapist. I don't know. Maybe it's a therapist who doesn't know the Enneagram. Well, and that's where I was going with it. My, uh, our therapist doesn't, mine and Whitney's, couples therapist. She has a separate therapist just for herself. He knows what the Enneagram is. We don't, he doesn't talk about the Enneagram. It's not his, his jam. She and I know it. And so we see how it plays out in our conversations. And he's a good therapist. Uh, we didn't get, we didn't find him through LTM. So they're, they are out there. Yeah. He knows that I'm not feeling dominant. Mm-hmm. He, it's abundantly clear. One, mm-hmm. it's not, you don't have to dig deep to realize that yeah. with me, but he knows that and then works with that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a therapist, but I, you know, a therapist will get that with, with fives of like, okay, it's not the, it's not your dominant thing. And you deal with it. We all deal with feelings in, in our way. own way. That's right. And, and none of them are things to be fixed. Nope. That's what I was going to say. And I was going to say, if there is a relationship problem because of it, that needs to be fixed. That's something to address then. Then you address that. And the way I would encourage you to address that is by teaching the person that that's how you're put together and to give you a few days and you will respond with the feelings that are yours and nobody wants you to just make up stuff. That's not helpful. Uh, There was, was, this isn't about feelings. This is about doing. Whitney asked if I wanted to do something. I forget what it was. I was like, I don't know. Let me, maybe, let me, she's like, well, like, do you want to do it or, or not? I was like, well, I want to do it. Like, yes, in theory, yes. I don't know if I want to do it on that day. That's right. And I just need to, Think about I will it. make a decision. And you know, and she kind of pressed a little bit. And I was like, if you were asking me to make a decision right now, then the answer is no. No. I can't. And it works like that with That's everyone. Right. That's right. Like, I can't ask her, hey, what do you think about this? And I need you now. to tell me now. I need to know right now. And you can't ask a five, I, hey, give me yeah. your feelings right now. Yeah. It's just not a fair request. They're not there. A uh, question from the same person. My husband is an eight. So we got five married to an eight. How can I show up with intensity to meet him, given that intensity is intimacy for eights? You have intensity and intense feelings about some of the things that you think. So you show up 
with good, deep thinking, which will come with intensity. That's, that is the arena where you are intense. You don't have intense feelings. You don't have intense doing. You have intense thinking. And so that's what you show up with. And you start to share what you think about lots of things, especially things that you feel strongly about. All right, we're going to switch the, the topic. We're going to start talking about anger. So first question, and then I'm going to read three questions after you answer this question. Last night you suggested, so this would be from the Saturday part. Last night you suggested that the support center could be developed to reduce anger. As an eight, how could I develop my thinking supporting center to help me reduce my anger? That's a great question. And uh, the answer, I fear, will sound overly simplified. But you, when you just use doing and feeling around anger, then you have feelings about what you do and you do something about the feelings you have. Thinking is self-evaluation. And you can't address anger unless you are self-aware enough to think through how it affects relationships, how it affects other people, how it affects you, how it affects you at work, how it affects you at home, how it affects your next-door neighbor, that's all thinking. And unless you use all three centers, but particularly because you don't use it using thinking, then you don't know the damage that your anger does. You, you just aren't aware of it because you're focused on the future and you're not thinking about how what you're saying or doing is affecting other people. You cannot manage anger with doing or feeling. You can only learn to manage it by using good thinking. You know, what a great question. And do you think when we're addressing questions like this, there really is a, it has to be a holistic approach and answer. So it's not just, okay, I've got to bring up thinking, but then that also involves slowing down, you know, eights are future oriented. Okay, well, you got to, you got to be, can't be future oriented right now to address your anger in the present moment and, and, and all those things. And you, you just have to have, you you have to use the three centers of intelligence for what they're intended for. So you got to feel and do and think, and you, you have to have balance in all three, but you also have to have some spiritual practices going on where you do self-examine. Like you could stop at noon and at six o'clock in the evening and ask yourself where this is all thinking, where has my anger affected my relationships with other people? What, if anything, do I need to do to repair that? Why does this keep happening with this one person? Like all of those things are thinking. All right, we're going to keep talking about anger, but we're going to talk about another number. Okay. So I'm going to read three questions here. Assuming I, as a type nine, have been able to acknowledge my anger, how do I release it in such a way that doesn't come out sideways, won't harm my relationships, won't bring shame or regret, and and will be taken seriously? Question two, from another person, from another city. 
How do you handle anger from a nine? Seems like a trap. So this, that's not the nine. Question three. Do both nines and ones hold their rage in until they explode? How are the forms of anger unhealthy expressed different? Do they both deny their anger? That's a, that's a lot right there. Yeah. Okay. A lot of one anger is generated by the relationship that the one has with the critic. The critic makes you angry with yourself. So let, let's say you're in a friendship with somebody who is just a jerk. You lose the reality of the fact that you're in a relationship with somebody who's a jerk because you listen to the critic and what you begin to focus on is why am I why am I such a jerk that I'm in this relationship instead of what's happening in the exchange between the two of you. So in the exchange, you have to be mindful of the fact as a one that you get to be unhappy, angry in real time about something with another person. The challenge is how you express that anger. And you may need to take a breath or two before you say anything because until you practice it, you're not accustomed to dealing with anger in real time. You stuff it and stuff it and stuff it because you think anger's wrong. And that is not true for nines. Nines don't think anger is wrong. Nines don't want fragmentation in relationships. And so they hold in all their anger because they're afraid if they express it, it's going to cause a disconnect. And so their concern is about the disconnect. And that's not the one's concern. Nines have told me over the years that they're afraid of their anger. And I don't think it's because they stuff it. I think it's because they have set it aside rather than stuffing it. And so they don't know how to be angry appropriately. You know, every single thing we do well, we did, we practiced. That's why you had to practice with feelings. I don't know how to ask the right questions, so I'm going to write myself a list of questions. That's practicing. I, when I first started teaching, had to practice with trusting my own thinking instead of thinking I always needed to be checking myself with somebody else or quoting somebody else. That's why this third book is such a big deal for me because there are parts of the book that are my thinking. And I didn't have a, you know, I checked it with all the experts but I, that I uh, uh, respect, but I didn't learn it from them. And so I think one anger and eight anger is, act, I mean, nine anger, I'm sorry. I think one anger and nine anger is actually very different and it comes from a very different place. The thing that it has in common is it very quickly becomes rage. And that's dangerous. And so nines need to share that they're angry about what they're angry about, which won't be nearly as frequent as ones being angry about what they're angry about and allowing themselves to be angry in real time. 
Now, uh, I need to talk about what else? Let's see here. Um, all right, so how do you suggest that nines release their anger so that it doesn't come out sideways? And so that other people, you know, this other person feels like when they do uh, show their anger that it's some sort of trap. Yeah. So I don't think it's a trap. I think it. the problem is it's a reaction instead of an action. So nines have this litany of things that they do. And essentially they're saying, well, the reason I'm angry is because you did ABC. Or you said it this way. Or you didn't mention this. Or why didn't you tell me in, when it happened? That kind of stuff. And that nines need to not do all that. And they need to accept when somebody experiences their anger and tells them how it feels. Nines, you're not going to be good at expressing anger until you practice expressing anger. And so you're going to have to be very self-aware and very disciplined so that you express it well. In terms of the nine that I love and live with, um, he's a big believer when we have a conflict and we're both angry in separation, like a timeout. And it makes me angry when he leaves and goes to the church. When there's, It makes me angrier. And it's always the best thing. Because when you get whipped up, then you start to do and say stuff. And it, you get all energized, which nines don't really understand energy. They don't ever have an overload except when they're angry. And it comes out as rage that they really regret. Which keeps them from practicing which keeps them from expressing anger when they're angry. One of the biggest things that I remember hearing during the pandemic, like during the heart of it was Billy talking about how much he missed and needed to leave the house to go to work. He talked about, you know, he and Joey would get as a nine and eight, they'd be in a fight, they'd be in an argument. And normally he, well, I have to leave now and go to work. And then he can process it and come back with being prepared and all the things that Joey needs, first of all. Yes. However, during the pandemic, there was no leaving to go to work. Right. It was going to another room and Joey following him to the other room. Yep. Joey is my daughter and Billy <laughs> is, she did marry her father. <laughs> but what I would say about that is right now we're in kind of an interesting situation because there's been a flood at the church. And Joe is officing primarily at home. Uh, he's at the church two days, three days a week, counting Sundays. But he's at home the rest of the time. And we're just in a really sweet spot right now, so we don't have anger going on. But um, he's just right. He's right. I hate that. But he's right that once you take a break and take a breath and think, ah, you know, I need to cook dinner. I need to finish that talk I'm going to give next weekend. I need to, then it's like you just chill and it takes all of the unnecessary energy out of the feelings. I'm probably going to uh, pull for the intro to this podcast, a sample from Daniel Tiger. There you go. My four-year-old favorite. I think you should. So when you feel so mad and Uh you want to roar. There you go. Take a deep breath and count to four. (laughs) So everyone who heard that in the intro, now yeah. now you know why. As a three married to a two, 
and discussions of feelings, how can I tell the difference between offering solutions and offering comfort and presence? I struggle seeing the difference. Well, feelings come first and then the solution. That's the difference. It seems like comfort and presence doesn't have to include solution. That's right. Solutions. That's right. And, and so, um, solutions are a response to problems and problems are expressed usually with feelings and you have to keep the two separate. They don't work otherwise. You just have to recognize I, and so all you have to do is use language, use good language around that. I understand how you feel, man, that's terrible. And I don't want you to feel that way. Um, maybe you could try this, but I wouldn't be glib about the, I understand how you feel (laughs) and I have a solution. (laughs) Just mentioned a minute ago of practice is how you get good at something. And probably the first time that let's say Whitney or one of the children where I was like, all right, just be there. Don't try to fix anything. Don't try to fix anything. Don't point out that you don't have to feel this way. Don't reframe it. I was just being there. It probably sounded a little glib and robotic of, I'm so sorry that that sucks. Pat, pat, pat. Yep. Just and looking at the clock of how long is this going to take? There you go. And you've had a lifetime of that, haven't you? Of what? Sweet mama. You've never done that. Okay. Now, no. I'm on the other side. You have had to say, I have to listen. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have never done that. No, you've been listening to that, though. So I was going to try to answer this question without having to say this. And I can't. (sighs) Twos verbally processed. And they don't want a solution until they're done verbally processing. There are... uh... (laughs) There are two sitcom. Now you know Daniel Tiger. Now I'm in the zone for uh, pop culture references oh, here. Right, uh, but two sitcom references to just being there. There's this episode of Seinfeld. It's really great. Uh, this couple breaks up, and Jerry and Elaine are ecstatic because they're hot individuals, hot like hot item individuals. Yeah. They're like, yes, they're back on the market. How, how do we play this? Yeah, and she's like. I'm there for you. Just be there. You're here. I'm here. I'm here for you. <laughs> and there's that one. And the other one was uh, from New Girl where they called it, they called this move the Biden of just being there. Do you guys still like an Oakland face with an L.A. booty? Would you like to know my strategy, Jess? Is the art of seduction really where you shine? Be there. That's it? Yeah. Just be there. No matter where he goes, be there. He gets a drink. Be there. He talks to his friends. Be there. At the end of the night, be there. It's called the Joe Biden. That's creepy, man. The, the basic concept of what he's saying, though, could actually work. Yeah. I'm just here. I'm just, <laughs> That's good. Wherever he goes, just be there. Yeah. Don't worry about me. I'm here. I'm, yeah, I'm right here. So. I, th- uh, I do think that it a lot of it has to do with that verbal processing. And I... I'm trying really hard to do my own thinking so that I verbally process less. 
And I'm trying to do it in a response to you, actually, being so committed to being patient with my verbal processing. It makes me not want you to have to go through all that. <laughs> there you- is a generosity in twos that feels that way if the, if it can be seen in that context. Well, the gift that Whitney gives me often now, she opens with that. She says, listen, I'm verbally, I'm verbally processing yep. and I need you to listen to yep. me. And I know, and I know this is what I'm doing, yep. but it's what I need right now. And I'm like, Great. you got it. Sound yep. off. Same thing. I'm doing the same thing with dad. I've been doing that for a while with dad. And I just say, I know this is verbal processing, but I don't know how to get to the end without doing it. And then when she's done, I don't, I was like, well, let me, let me know how that goes and yeah. need something. And it doesn't sound with her opening with that, then I'm not, yeah. Then you're not Then it's like, okay, we can be honest about this. That's right. I've heard, I've heard you. Yep. And I'm not going to try to fix it. And let me know if there's something I can do. Sure. And I know right now you are not asking for that. Yeah. And never have been with verbal processing. We're trying to figure it out ourselves. We just can't do it in our heads. And just go, man, without the Enneagram, I've, I've got divorce too underneath my belt for sure. But I've, without the Enneagram, I don't the have reverend marriage. would be father. So, yeah. And I don't have marriage number two underneath my belt. But when you say, I'm not looking for solutions. I just want to talk without the Enneagram. I say, then why are you talking to me about it? Right. If you don't want a solution, then you're wasting everybody's time. Right. You're wasting your own time. You're wasting my time. That's not what's happening. So very grateful. I, I would add, though, uh, that I'm just aware uh, since dad's not officing at the church right now, so he's home. And because he's done all of the uh, book tour, um, we've been together more. There are some things that I can figure out for myself. And verbal processing is just habitual. And uh, I think we all have a responsibility to do whatever's on our side of the fence. And I can figure out some stuff for myself. I don't, I don't have to say out loud what's going through my head all the time. So I'm trying to save. Do you think I should use a big Band-Aid or a little Band-Aid? Like, that's, that's an honest example. It's just ridiculous. I'm curious. I'm in the zone on accident now. The for people watching that enjoyed the television show Scrubs. <laughs> the whole show is narrated by the main character in his head, like it's all uh-huh. his ongoing dialogue. And that has to be why you love it so much. Maybe so. And but he, but speaking of verbal processing, in you know the band aid example you just gave, yeah. I want to say it's episode one, season one, episode one, that he goes up to Dr. Cox and is like, hey, how many of these should I give Miss whatever? Did you actually just page me to find out how much Tylenol to give to Mrs. Lenzner? I was worried that it could exacerbate the patient's... It's regular strength Tylenol. Here's what you do. Get her to open her mouth, take a handful, and throw it at her. Whatever sticks, that's the correct dosage. And under no circumstances are you to compromise or no talking agreement. And he looks at me, he's like, those are regular strength Advil. Open her mouth and throw them. And whatever, (laughs) whatever sticks, that's the prescription. 
Like, why are you talking to me about this? Stop. Stop it. So that's how I feel about that Band-Aid example you just gave. Yeah, sometimes. That would be my response. I don't know. But I, put a gauze and a yeah, whole an ace bandage do. around it. I don't I know. I don't care. Not <laughs> only I don't know, I don't care. Yeah. You can figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think, Daddy's never said these words to me. Never. But sometimes I, I think to myself after a little episode of uh, verbal processing that's unnecessary. <laughs> You're having another episode. <laughs> I think, I think, um, I wonder if he feels like he's Dean of Students again and I'm the student. Can you think of a time when you were little, like a, a kid kid, that you were verbally processing with, I don't know, your your mom or dad or? Interestingly enough. Kids, I, kids and I'm sorry, I ask because kids just talk so much anyway as it is. I don't think, I don't know what, I've said this before, I'll continue to say it until they pick out their own number. I don't know what numbers my kids are. I think one might be one, however, but they all just talk so much anyway. How can, what does verbal processing look like in a child? It's very interesting because I um, have been beginning the work for, for a year in terms of looking at fostering and adoption and all the things that go with that, reading a lot and all that. And one of the things I have increased my awareness of is that I spent so much time alone as a child. My brothers were 18 and 15 when I was born. By the time I was talking through anything, they were gone. My parents were busy and they traveled a lot. They were super parents, and I was well cared for. And by travel a lot, I mean they went to Europe once a year, which was a long trip. They didn't travel without me a lot. But I can't remember talking to anybody about anything, except that everything I did was pretend. The whole upstairs was mine. And somebody asked me uh, on a podcast, their podcast, not ours, what I, how, what I played as a child, and it hit me for the first time, library. I played library and played with books all the time. And my parents read enough that I had books to play with. And I can visualize, since you asked me the question, my little desk that I had set up where I would check out books to people, and I talked to the imaginary people. Berenstein Bear there? I guess. I like I. I didn't have an imaginary friend, but I had imaginary people in scenarios where if I'd had a sister or a brother to play with, I would have, they would have checked out the book like they were by, at the library. You know yeah, what I'm saying? I get it. And my mother started and ended every one of my days sitting on my bed talking to me. She woke me up in the morning and scratched my back and talked to me. And no matter what time I came in at night, like even when I was in late high school, I never was home after again after I went to college. I never lived home again. But like if I got home from a date at midnight, she came upstairs and sat on my bed and talked to me. And I think I must have done a lot of verbal processing then. Right on. Your mother was a five, so I get to ask a five question now. Yeah. 
How does a five in liminal space know when they have transformed enough or done enough work or have enough knowledge to move forward? If we're in liminality, I think it's a great question because if we're in liminality and, and if that's the only teachable sp- spot, yep. uh, possibly according to Roar. Yep. And then, others. And if you're an anagram five who wants to hoard all of that learning and knowledge and yeah. what a sweet spot, how to know, and you're a press doer. Yeah. Yeah. How to know when to move forward. Man, that's such a good question, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think you have to have a right relationship with uh, expertise. And I think you have to have a right relationship with enough. And I don't think expertise or enough has to be, I know enough forever to move forward, but I think it can be, I know enough for now to move forward. I've, done enough work around this for now that I've decided I'm going to try these three things. I've put enough energy into this that I don't think I want to learn more about this. I don't think I need to know any more to live my life successfully. But I don't think you you close any doors behind you. I, I think you just say, I know enough to go to first base. And then I'll maybe continue to revisit this for a long time. One of the four trauma responses is fawning. Fawning is doing for someone to avoid conflict, which is the description of a nine. How do you reconcile that? That's a great question. I've made a decision that I'm not going to speak publicly about trauma until I feel very secure about my responses and until I've kind of checked where I find myself by teaching with trauma experts in the room. And so I can, I, I, I understand the question. I feel like I could kind of come up with an answer, but I just am leaning into this work and learning and I just don't want to risk saying anything that I would have to walk back later. The first time I've ever heard possibly the first time I ever heard the word fawning, Mm -hmm. but definitely um, at an LTM event or that this context was the 2020 boot camp that we did here virtually from the Micah center. It was broken into two different weekends, Mm -hmm. uh, one in July and one in August or maybe June and August. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Barbara Ryla did talk about flight, fight or fawn. Mm -hmm. And there were questions around you you and Dr. Andy Stoker and Dr. Barbara Ryla were all very clear to not assume, for instance, that a nine Mm -hmm. would automatically, that that would be the response. Um, That being said, she did talk about it some, and y'all did talk about it as a panel. Mm -hmm. So, and, you know, spend the 35 bucks. uh, Yeah, it's worth it. it, It's a ton of content. It's a lot of good content too. Where but, each of us stayed in our own lane and did what we knew how to do. Yeah, and you might be able to find the answer you're looking for there. Yeah, I think so, so. too. So, yeah, that's called the 2020 Anagram Boot Camp. I think it says, like, 2020 EBC or something like that. How can I, as a one, or the dependent stance in general, balance being compassionate and showing that I care while not taking responsibility for things? That's Greek to me. <laughs> 
it's easy for me. So it's interesting because I was thinking, and I bet you thought I was thinking about an expansive answer. I was just thinking about, is there a way I can make my answer longer so that it sounds respectful? There you go. Because my answer is, have as part of your practice, no matter what number you are in the dependent stance, what is mine to do? And the fact that you can be compassionate and present doesn't mean that you are responsible for anything beyond that. And I am uh, learning to be present to people and be compassionate and not say, if you'll give me your email address, I can email you a longer answer when I'm not signing books. Or like I've learned that I, when we have somebody anywhere who is really in need of a response, then you've watched me do it over and over. I hand them off to a therapist in the room, a pastor in the room that I know, and say, here you go. These people live in your town, and they can help you with your thing. And I'm, I'm thinking that when I die, it could be that the most important practice other than contemplative prayer of my life would be asking of the question, what is mine to do? And it comes with, if I do something in response to the compassion that I feel, what do I expect in return from the other person? And that also comes with, and I'm sad that you feel that way. I can feel your feelings. And do you want my help? Those three questions have changed my life, literally. And those are... I was going to take a different angle at it. Those are three kind of micro examples. Mm -hmm. There are countless things um, and groups of people that I have compassion for. Let me get the word right. Uh, Compassion for and care about Mm -hmm. that. Everyone can't, I don't want to say the word crusade. You can't, you can't take care of everything of and everything. take care of your own life. I can't, you know, I, I really do. Over the pandemic, I got two tattoos that were one is the Black Lives Matter fist. Another one is a huge feminist tattoo. You know, one of the things that me and Whitney talked about uh, when rallies were going on, we didn't feel like we should take our kids to them. No. They weren't in the best interest of the kids of keeping them safe. We were right. seeing children being hurt. Right. Uh, and we wanted to be there. And I think it's those kind of, you just have to keep, those are the first questions. Yeah. What What is mine to do? And then more questions come after that. And, and it's just what's the result of my, me doing A, B, C, or D? Because right. it's always multiple choice. 100% yeah. of the time. A and B is multiple choice. There's always more than two options. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, the thing, I, I, I worked really hard to be a good mom when y'all were little and even in high school. And I think I did a pretty good job. And if I have a regret, it's that I am absolutely sure that I sometimes took dad and the four of you for granted and gave love in quotes, air quotes here. 
to uh, somebody else that I was trying to have compassion for and care for, and it wasn't mine to do, and therefore it took away from the love that I have for the five of you. Like, there's only so much to a person, and you can't, you cannot help everybody. Uh, you and Teresa McBean both shared that sentiment as dependent stance. Yep. She's a six for anybody who hasn't heard that podcast uh, about being you as a two, she's a six, females in ministry yep. uh, with family and with kids of looking back and mm-hmm. wishing they had maybe done a few things different around yep. that. Absolutely. If I had it to do over, I would... Um, limit myself to how many people I could say yes to. I didn't hear the transition to motherhood or parenthood as an example of liminal space this weekend, although that moment felt extremely sacred. Could you touch on that liminal space if it is and how long that transition lasts? Well, that's so fantastic. And that is liminal space. And I never thought of it till just this minute. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will talk about that from now on. It is definitely liminal space, and it's definitely sacred space. And it fits all of the defining points of what liminality is. You're not in control. You have to wait. You're waiting for something to happen that comes from outside of yourself. Yeah, I, all I can do is receive that as a gift. All right. So you, so you listener, are correct. It is liminal space. And the uh, thing you can talk a little bit about there is how long that transition lasts. That's got to be different for every, That's going to be unique and personal for everyone, I would imagine. I think so, but I, there are a lot of parts of parenting that, involve so much evolving and change that it could look like liminality, but it isn't. You know, like parenting a first grader is completely different from parenting a toddler and being a a parent to adult children is different from anything you've ever done. But that isn't liminality, that's change. Can you go from, you know, when you're talking about liminality and when you're teaching on liminality, you use the term threshold. Can you go from one threshold to another threshold? So let's say hypothetically, prospective mom or dad, we want to get pregnant and we're not pregnant yet, Mm -hmm. but we're trying Mm -hmm. and it's not happening. Mm -hmm. So there's that stretch of time Mm -hmm. now to we are pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so... Where is that another threshold? Like, is it, mm-hmm. can you go from threshold to threshold to possibly another threshold? I think you could, but I, I, I think there are, I, I think there's a space in between, you know, it's like we want to have children, but we aren't pregnant yet. Um, then when you get pregnant, you celebrate that before you enter into the liminality of pregnancy. So, you know, like I would imagine the first trimester is, oh, we're so thankful we're present. We're, oh, we're so thankful we're pregnant, even though I'm sick every morning. 
and then it's August in Texas, and you're eight months pregnant, and then it's a different kind of, uh, I, I, I don't know how much longer I can stand to be pregnant. I need this baby to arrive. You know, uh, that- and let me add, that this is an old person, young person, little comment here, but you know, uh, choosing when your baby's going to be born and being induced and all of that, that's new to my children's generation. That was not my option. My option was I had babies when I had them and I didn't know when that was going to be. I have a, a, a lot of women my age over time have told me where they were when their water broke. You know, all those things are changed now for many people, not globally, but for many people in the West. It's like, uh, uh, you know, my doc's going to induce me on Tuesday because he's going on vacation. So what I'm saying is we have eliminated, with modernization, we continue to eliminate some liminal spaces. You think that's bad? I don't know if it has, I don't know if I think it has moral value, but I, no, I don't think it's bad, but I don't think it's necessarily good. It just is. I don't, I don't think it has any moral value. It is what is. And along with the liminality that we're able to kind of find our way around, there's new liminality that comes with modernization too. I do wonder in countries where they don't have the same options we have in the West, it makes me wonder what it would be like to have one experience of liminality and then find yourself here and that not be the fact anymore, but have other experiences of liminality that must be overwhelming. If we use the, that image of the threshold again, you know, when uh, you've got something in a mirror and then it just goes on infinitely you can, when you're looking in the mirror and I guess it's, you have to have two mirrors for that to work, but, and you've got that image. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that is what life is, is just threshold after threshold mm-hmm. after threshold? Mm-hmm. It sounds like something that, I guess should be a goal, but that you can't make a goal. They maybe have to let it come to you. So if liminality is the best or only teachable space, mm-hmm. you know, we got to keep learning as we're growing older mm-hmm. is the goal to get from one threshold to the next. And then out of that and to the next, and then out of that and to the next. Uh, and that, and that's, I feel like this touches back a little bit on that Enneagram five question of, when do I know and enough? knowing when I'm mm-hmm. when I'm going to look for the next threshold? Yeah, and I th- I think though with the five question in part and with your question, maybe totally, that would suggest that we're in charge of the next. Right, that's what I was saying. Yeah, you know, right, that yeah. it's going to come. Propose the idea of control, which there's not. There's yeah, it's just going to come, and um, so here's an example. Dad and I uh, really enjoy travel in Italy. 
and um, we went twice, and we were in really good tip-top shape over some years, and we did great. And then we went a third time, and we were in less tip-top shape, but we were with Joey and Billy, and they did some things to make that trip easier for us. And now we're asking the question, if we think we can travel internationally again. Those kinds of changes represent liminality, but you have to have a grasp of it to get it. So if we went to Europe again with any of our children, it would be, y'all go have a great time and we'll meet you for dinner. That would be us talking to you, not y'all talking to us. (laughs) And... It would be what are we? What would Dad and I learn from that? You see that? It's a it's very subtle, but it's a threshold. And so the questions that come with that kind of threshold, for example, with aging, are: Are you willing to be vulnerable enough to go do something you love to do, having to depend on somebody else? When there was a time when that was not the threshold. And I think the thresholds come. And we either acknowledge them or deny them. Neither of which, like, you can deny that you're on a threshold, but if you're there, okay. Then that just means you've decided not to learn anything. Well, I think my my short answer, because I'm sure this needs editing. So my short answer (laughs) is, I do think from... The beginning to the end of life, life presents us with liminal space of one kind or another that we have responsibility for managing one way or another. Well, we, uh, this podcast is over, but we're not yet to our next podcast. So um, we can enjoy that space. Yeah. Uh, So thank you so much. Uh, Thank you everyone who has been attending the tour and spending your very 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 valuable weekends with us 